Welcome back to The Breakdown, an everyday analysis breaking down the most important stories in Bitcoin, crypto, and beyond. This episode is sponsored by Bitstamp and CypherTrace. The Breakdown is produced and distributed by Coindesk. And now, here's your host, NLW. Welcome back to The Breakdown. It is Monday, June 29th, and here we are at the end of another month. This one has been rough, to put it bluntly. We have seen some of the most intense civil unrest that we've seen since the late 60s. We are currently in the middle of a re-outbreak of this pandemic and all the consequences that might come with that. We've had the somehow-it-makes-sense absurdity of a Robin Hood rally and a Davy Day Trader global movement that is pumping bankrupt stocks. So on this episode, we're going to look back across some of the clips from guests that I've had over the course of this month. It's a pretty wide-ranging group of people, and I hope that you enjoy this walk down recent memory lane. This is mostly in chronological order, but I do try to put together a sort of narrative through line, so let's dive in. We kicked off the month with a discussion with Alex Gladstein, who is the Chief Strategy Officer of the Human Rights Foundation. The conversation focused largely on the raised stakes of the discussion in the battle between privacy and surveillance and how the new context of electronic and digital money changes the nature of that fight. In this clip, Alex discusses how important cash is as a release valve in that system. It's just another attack vector on on people's liberties. You have cash, which was certainly, you know, created from a economic organic perspective, right? As a as an easier way of doing commerce to the point where I just learned this recently. I, I was doing some historical reading in this area. And I mean, Americans were pretty dependent on checks 120 years ago, which is pretty amazing. I, I didn't realize that. Um, really? It's so interesting. Yeah. And whether it was paper notes like greenbacks or whatever, let's say from the Civil War, or or checks, paper checks, these arose not necessarily because governments uh, decided uh, that we were going to use paper as money, uh, but they kind of arose organically, it seems, historically with regard to market forces. If we didn't have paper money now, all we had was digital money, and someone came along and said, hey, we're going to invent cash, they would be laughed out of the room right now, right? Mainly because governments would say, are you kidding? Like that, that would be so dangerous because we wouldn't be able to monitor where all the money goes. So cash is this incredible thing that we've grandfathered in from previous times that doesn't fit with the agenda of financial authorities and government officials who want omniscience over all payments and transactions. So cash is this kind of like odd man out from a previous era that we should definitely support. And there's some great people out there like Brett Scott and 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 others. There's a guy named Ro- Rohan Gray, Brett Scott. There are people who are promoting cash and that there's this whole, whole like, hopefully they become a lobby to help underline how important cash is to different communities around the world. But um, as I think you and I both know, I mean, that, that cash is ultimately da- days are numbered, right? And all mm-hmm. of our money is going to transform if it hasn't already into this digital system. Speaking of surveillance money, one of the biggest threats for people who are concerned about financial privacy in the future is the idea of the growing adoption of a Chinese digital currency. 
In my conversation with Graham Webster, however, I wanted to provide some background for how the U.S.-China relationship got to where it was. Graham is the editor-in-chief of the DigiChina Project, which is a collaboration between Stanford and the New America Project, and in this clip talks about how China has spent the last decade turning away from liberalism despite the ambitions of the Obama administration. China was on a path that would be closer to the world and would be less at odds and would be perhaps uh, would give more space politically. In 2012, you could locate the change a little bit before that, but in 2012 and 13, uh, Xi Jinping took power. And uh, really since then, there's been almost no uh, turn toward liberalism at every turn that's perceptible in terms of public space and civil society and the public sphere and freedoms. Uh, China has been going in a more illiberal direction uh, you know, for, for almost a decade now, arguably. It's hard to locate exactly when the turn towards illiberalism took hold in China, but uh, it goes back at least about a decade and, and some people place it back in 2009, um, really coinciding with the Obama administration. And the Obama administration had spent a ton of time trying to rebalance, as they called it, uh, U.S. strategic attention from the Obama administration, including the State Department under Hillary Clinton, had spent an enormous amount of time trying to rebalance attention uh, from where they were bogged down or where the U.S. had been bogged down in Afghanistan and Iraq to the Asia-Pacific. And this was both because they saw a challenge from China. China's military was becoming stronger. Um, its economy was becoming more central to the world economy. And also U.S. interests there and allied interests are enormous. Uh, Japan, Philippines, uh, all of the, the shipping lanes and all of the trade relationships and all of the supply chains that, that stretch across that part of the world, not to mention the fact that, you know, a good half of all people on earth live spread out somewhere between India and China. So, you know, there was a lot of attention on that. And they more or less achieved a simple goal, which is let's pay more attention. Let's move some of the military assets. Let's try to build up our strategic thinking. But even after eight years, the Obama administration hadn't figured out, well, then what? Okay, we're paying more attention. But what to do about this basic stuff? Because remember, these, these basic problems are hard. Um, there's a shift in power between the two countries. Of course, if a Chinese central bank digital currency is a threat in the future, many are focused more on what they perceive as threats today. In particular, we've seen a huge amount of discussion of the Fed money printer, right? Money printer go burr. It's really been the meme of the year. However, in this clip, Jeff Snyder makes the argument that the Fed's power is a mirage, that in fact, it is only the power of self-fulfilling prophecy to get the market to do its work for it that actually gives it any heft in the system. The reason for that is the euro-dollar shadow banking system, which overwhelms the Fed's capacity to actually act. One thing after another that is cascaded into implosion and failure because for a long time, the risks involved in it were never really appreciated, including the idea that the central bank could bail it out if, it ever, if push ever came to shove. And then when you had push come to shove starting in August of 2007, the Fed proved unequivocally that it was really powerless to do much about it. And so it was just, it was a, it was a tidal wave of failures and, and, and a structural implosion that just once it started, whether it was subprime mortgages or not, it was impossible to stop. 
the first myth that you mentioned was the kind of myth of the no risk to the system. The second myth had to do with the capacity for central banks to uh, to backstop it, to fix it. Uh, you've called this the flood myth. Uh, and actually, I think just wrote a piece about, uh, you know, we shouldn't have had to explain this again. But can you explain what this the flood myth actually is? History repeats itself, and we're repeating basically what happened in 2008 and 2009 again. And the, the, you know, go back to that period of time, especially in early 2009, common wisdom or conventional understanding said Ben Bernanke's Fed had just flooded the world with liquidity, had just flooded the world with dollars. Can't, you can see it. I mean, the Fed's balance sheet is expansion. We've got hundreds of billions in bank reserves that it created out of thin air. He created them digitally, printed it. It's printing money. This is going to be inflationary. The dollar is going to be destroyed. How dare he? And oh, by the way, the government's being reckless. The, uh, Barack Obama's um, administration is, is spending almost $800 billion. I mean, these were astronomical numbers at the time. And yet all we had was more crisis and more recession, the deepest recession since the, uh, since the Great Depression. And so what we're saying is that the myth is the Fed printed all this money and flooded the world with dollars. But the reality was that there was this deficit created by the breakdown in the shadow euro dollar system, which overwhelmed anything the Fed or the federal government tried. Because of this, it's the bank-centered system in this offshore space that actually matters. That's where the rubber meets the road. That's where that's where credit and money hit the real economy in the bank offshore system, not what the Fed does on its balance sheet. Another way to interpret what Jeff said in that clip is that media takes what the Fed says its policy is and makes it real by making it sound real. This opens up a conversation about the role the media plays in the economy and in society as a whole. My conversation with Popular Front founder Jake Hanrahan is largely about that as well. In our discussion, Hanrahan laid out a key problem with media and labeled it as its almost veneer of objectivity within myself with journalism was from seeing a lot of problems within the mainstream industry and getting very sick of twisted reporting or there's a very big problem as well where basically mainstream journalism generally in the UK is kind of liberal centrist kind of vibe right and that's fine that's like what most of the country probably are right but the, the mainstream liberal journalists will suddenly tell you you're an activist and not a proper journalist if you deviate any way from their central liberal line. For example, I'm seeing now, like, you know, journalists that painted themselves as kind of leftist for a while when it was popular are now suddenly being like, save the police, the police are getting hurt in the UK. And it's like, well, why weren't you saying that when people were fighting against the police in wherever? Oh, because our police are good or whatever. And it's like, for you, maybe they're good. In your life, in your London bubble, maybe they're good. But let me tell you, I've got a lot of friends and myself as well where the police have not been good. Now, that doesn't mean I'm abolish police. I don't you know, any society needs a police force, whether you call it that or not. But it cannot carry on like this, is my opinion. Now, all of a sudden, that makes you an activist to these people. It's like, well, I'm not, I'm not saying to you, you're a liberal activist because you have your views. Do you know what I mean? So why all of a sudden do they want to paint the other side like that? And I think that a lot of people are waking up to that. A lot of people know that just having a different point of view doesn't make you a f***ing activist. You can be a journalist and be a human and have an opinion on things so long as you don't let it cloud your work. Do you know what I mean? Every journalist has an opinion on something. Yes, we have to be objective, but... 100% objectivity means you don't really seem to feel anything. And a lot of people want to know the feeling of something because that is all part of the human experience, which journalism is not just 
bullet points. Do you know what I mean? It's not just meant to be bullet mm-hmm. points, in my opinion. I think it should be about nuance and I think it should be about kind of discussing and trying to break down these complicated issues and make them simple um, or at least easier to understand. You can't make them simple, but you can make them understandable. So the way to do that is is not to just be like, have a, have a stick up your ass and be like, well, it's this, this and this because the government blah, blah. Bitstamp is the original global cryptocurrency exchange. Since 2011, Bitstamp has been the preferred exchange for serious traders and investors, trusted by over 4 million customers, including top financial institutions. Bitstamp is built on professional-grade trading technology. Their platform is powered by a NASDAQ matching engine, and their APIs are recognized as the best in the industry. Download the Bitstamp app from the App Store or Google Play, or visit bitstamp.net slash pro to learn more and start trading today. That's bitstamp.net slash pro. CypherTrace helps grow the crypto economy by making it trusted by governments and safe for consumers and investors. How do they do it? By protecting VASPs, banks, and other financial institutions from crypto laundering risks while protecting user privacy. Years of research have created the world's best cryptocurrency intelligence with the best attribution and deepest token coverage. So if your virtual asset business isn't using CypherTrace to manage compliance risks, you should start now. Learn more at CypherTrace.com. So what might the answer to this problem of media be? Well, for some, it's about social media and the ability for people to have their own voice and build their own following. The challenge, of course, is that the platforms where they build those followings still have the authority to shut them down, largely unilaterally. In this really fascinating conversation, Nick Carter argues that we should actually view social media as closer to something like frontier land than to a traditional private company. And in this context, squatters' rights might apply. Fights between settlers or squatters and the landlords that actually own the land in a technical sense. And the squatters were able to make the convincing and persuasive case that they should be the real owners of that land because, you know, really nobody was using it before them uh, or the, the absent landlords or the stakes. They certainly weren't. And they had developed the land. They had mingled their labor with the land in the Lockean sense. And there were lots and lots of legal battles. But what happened in the end, actually, for the most part, was the squatters won. uh, And the laws changed. And the laws came to recognize tomahawk rights as uh, a template for, uh, you know, legal divisions. Uh, So, you know, then you have acts like the Homestead Act, uh, which is pretty famous. That's the kind of the 40 acres and a mule theory, which staked out lots of land, you know, further across the American Midwest. Um, what people don't know about that is that was actually kind of a recognition of a de facto state of affairs. People had already settled and the government needed a way to bring that into legality. So this was a struggle taking, you know, common claims to land and rendering them into legal claims. This was a struggle that has lasted hundreds of years in the US. And then obviously now those common claims and legal claims, there's a one-to-one mapping. There's an analogy here. People lay claim to their digital property right now in an informal sense, but there is no ratification of that claim, right? Because the people that own these platforms, they want to retain total discretion. They want to be able to censor indiscriminately. They would like to be able to elevate certain concepts 
uh, maybe they can monetize that discretion, right? Uh, maybe they can tell advertisers, hey, like we'll make this topic trend and we'll deboost the other topics. Of course, another answer proffered particularly by the Bitcoin community for the problem of trust in media and other institutions is Bitcoin itself. In a brief departure from our main themes of economic dislocation and the role of the Fed, check out the crypto dog discussing getting into Bitcoin mining all the way back in 2011. Yeah, it's been it's been quite a journey. Um, so I got into Bitcoin um, pretty early on. It was uh, I, I don't remember exactly where I found it. I want to say it was on Tom's hardware. It was in 2011 or late 2010. I was just researching how to build, you know, a really, really badass desktop computer because I was poor and I wanted to play crisis on max settings. Um, so I, you know, I scrounged up every last dollar and uh, was trying to figure out the cheapest way I could do this, the, the most efficient graphics card from, you know, bang for my buck. Um, and along the way, I found out, oh, hey, there's all these nerds making money by using their graphics cards and pointing it at, uh, at Bitcoin. Um, so I thought, okay, cool. I'll, um, you know, I'll subsidize my mining or my, uh, my gaming rig. Uh, with a little bit of Bitcoin mining, and that's exactly what I did. Uh, I had fun with it; it was cool. You know, I, I would mind. I think I, I was on I was on a few different pools. I remember doing slush pool for a little bit, um, and some other just random pools that I'm sure are dead these days. I never got myself my own 50 uh, Bitcoin block, but um, I stacked up a little bit. Um, I sold a lot of that Bitcoin for for ten dollars or less. I remember, um, and I held on to a little bit that ended up getting goxed later on. Uh, in in retrospect, of course, it's so frustrating. But at the same time, you know, happens, and who knows? I probably would have sold that Bitcoin long before you know 1k or 20k or or what have you. So I uh, at the time um, in 2013, it didn't really bum me out too much. I didn't have too much Bitcoin to really be that mindful of it. But let's get back to the Fed. While Snyder focused on their impotence, Jesse Felder in this conversation brought up a discussion that is getting much larger which is the role of the Fed in increasing wealth inequality. There's just this pattern where the Fed has targeted asset prices, and really no other central bank on the planet has done it anywhere to the degree the Fed has done it. And so that's one part of it. Uh, you know, that, that's not just this euphoric speculation. It's the Fed explicitly spending 20 years at least trying to do this. How did you read Powell's comments last week or his answer to the question about whether the Fed had had any role in exacerbating inequality? It's completely disingenuous, right? I mean, you can't say we're trying to create a wealth effect, but we're playing no role in wealth inequality, right? If you say you know that, uh, you know, oh, it's only a minority of households own uh, financial assets, the majority, vast majority of households own no financial assets. We're going to try and push up the prices of those. You're saying we know we're going to create wealth inequality. So for them to say, you know, we play no part at all is, uh, you know, it's the Fed trying to tell a lie enough times that people will believe it um, to, to bungle a Danny Kahneman quote. Danny Kahneman, terrific behavioral economist, brilliant guy, um, has said that, you know, uh, people in power, whether you're, you know, Fed chair, president, you know, even a marketer, you know, marketer with a position of, of being able to tell stories to people, they all know that, that in order to get somebody to believe something, just repeat it over and over. And um, I think that's what the Fed is hoping to do right now. But I really do think it's it's failing because they keep getting asked this question. Um, we keep seeing, you know, wealth um, disparity grows, you know, worse and worse every year. And it's, it's even grown much worse as a, as a part of this 
you know, economic crisis created by the, the pandemic. So I don't think Jay Powell believes it when he says it, but he's trying to get other people to believe it. The question, of course, is how far the Fed can go. As part of the Masari Mainnet Conference, I hosted a discussion with a number of investors, including Ari David Paul. In this clip, Ari discusses how a loss of confidence in a central bank precedes the fall of that central bank's ability to actually influence the economy. So the markets are very explicitly um, reacting to Fed stimulus, which they're, which they're kind of assuming is infinite. So talking to like some of the biggest buy-side investors, um, it, it, the disconnect that we all see, you know, rising unemployment and yet a market marching higher, it's not complicated. It's, uh, you know, you have a Federal Reserve that has a massive amount of money to buy corporate bond ETFs that basically says they'll buy equity if they need to. You know, and we have a, we have a generation of investors who've been taught not to fight the Fed. For basically 20 years, um, you've been trained really the way to invest is just figure out where the Fed's going to push money. Eventually that breaks, but these things can take a really long time to break. Personally, I'm skeptical that it's going to last much, much longer, but wouldn't shock me if we made new equity highs over the next six months uh, before a collapse. Um, and, and the thing that breaks it, uh, whenever you have kind of a, Fed, a central bank driving asset prices higher, is that can continue as long as faith in the central bank continues, which can be a really long time. Um, I, basically, making a bet that that will end is a bet that kind of the central banking uh, banking backbone will itself crumble, which is, is ge a generational event or, or far, far more rare than a gen once a generation. So I do think we're headed for that personally. Um, but but that's why, you know, a lot of investors, they would say that's almost never a good bet to make. You're almost always betting better just betting the Fed can keep pushing things up if they have the political will to do so. So that doesn't surprise me. And then on protests. Um, Historically, I frankly, I'm, um, I've been trying to catch up with my economic history and looking at market reactions to protests at different countries, different time periods. You can almost never locate riots on a chart. Um, if you're looking at equity in almost any country, you can almost never find the, 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 the riots. Um, and I, I, I don't have like a really simple answer for why that is, except that they don't tend to have immediate massive impact on corporate earnings. At the end of the day, uh, markets do not reflect the economy. They reflect a handful of stocks, a basket of stocks. With the S&P 500 marching higher, it's basically five stocks going up and everything else going down. So yeah, the US economy is, is uh, I was gonna use profanity, is uh, doing very badly, but the earnings of a small number of giant companies have been doing reasonably well, companies like Amazon and Microsoft. And so when investors look at the recent uh, protests and riots, you know, is that going to impact Amazon's bottom line or Microsoft's? Maybe, right? But then we need to think about how much worse these things can get. Of course, that loss of confidence isn't the only problem that central banks face. Dr. Vikram Mancharamani in this clip lays out the recipe for inflation, which includes a skyrocketing budget deficit and the challenge of a growing debt-to-GDP ratio. Our budget deficit is skyrocketing as a country. And I've traveled a lot in emerging markets where emerging markets, if I saw a double digit budget deficit for a country, I was like on eggshells. I was like, this is a country that's going to fail. Well, here we are in the United States, well into double digit budget deficits, and our currency is strengthening. Um, now, the strengthening of the currency is interesting because it's a relative measure, but it's not strengthening relative to, um, relative to some non-printable currencies like gold or Bitcoin or um, and so what I would say here is the worry that I have is a longer term worry, the results of which uh, could be really horrible, and that stem from this crisis. And so what I mean by that is, 
Is it possible that we could find ourselves with pressure on the U.S. dollar uh, where other countries might decide now is the time to develop another global reserve currency to compete with the dollar? I think there's huge incentives for other countries to do so. It's a long-term process. It'll take time. But if and when that transpires, then the logic that I've seen play out in numerous other geographies uh, and other crises has the potential of playing out here. And here's the recipe. The recipe is, let's begin with large budget deficit spending. Let's add some quantitative easing and money printing. Let's have the currency get devalued. And the result, as has been the case in virtually every time you get those ingredients together, is hyperinflation. We saw it in Weimar, Germany. We saw it in uh, Zimbabwe. We saw it in Venezuela, etc. And so that is the latent worry that this crisis may be setting the conditions for that. I don't think it's anytime soon, but that is the worry. Of course, it hasn't just been Fed action that's been wild and unprecedented in the last few months. We saw things we thought we'd never see, such as oil trading at less than zero dollars. In this clip, Tracy Shukart explains that these things aren't as unlinked as they seem, and how the emergence of the modern American shale industry was predicated on cheap money in the post-Great Financial Crisis era. A little bit of background about shale is, um, you know, shale came on, there was a bunch of wildcatters, right? Uh, banks threw a bunch of money at them. And, um, and then we had uh, the 2014 16 oil crash. Banks kind of were burned. So uh, the private equity guys got involved. They were like, yeah, this is great. Um, and um, they threw a bunch of money at, at Shell then. And, you know, oil prices went up and everything was good, except for the fact that, you know, this whole time, the shale industry kind of has been mismanaged in a way. I mean, there hasn't been a lot of, you know, fiscal responsibility. Um, the way that a lot of these guys run their businesses, you know, they're over margin. They're not making money at any of these prices, but money kept being thrown at them. So they just kept doing what they were doing. So even after, you know, the first crash, um, when banks got burned and wouldn't give them any more money, they had the private equity guys come and give them a bunch of money. Um, so that's kind of a little bit of the uh, background on the shale industry. But they can move forward, moving up because of um, the pay behaviors of these companies and, and how they were run and things like that. And certainly not all of them, but a good majority of them. Um, what happened is, is that, you know, starting in around 2015, um, we started seeing a lot of bankruptcies, obviously. And every year since then, even though oil prices have gone up, um, they haven't gone up to, you know, that, you know, we were over $100 a barrel. We haven't even gotten close that close to that in the last five years. Um, and so they're not making money. So just coming into this off fresh off of the oil crash of 2014-16, these guys kind of never really rebounded from that, right? So we saw from 2015 to uh, 2000. 19, say. I mean, there have been over 200 bankruptcies. Still, at the end of the day, the story of this past month was unrest. The breakdown focused mostly on the economic dimension of this unrest and the feeling of being left behind that undergirds so much of it. 
In my most recent interview, Bitcoin investor Tur Demeester captures this sentiment perfectly. If you have a money printing machine in Washington, D.C., or wherever you want to imagine it, and then there is a, a small circle of um, people around it, and then kind of like concentrically, people are sitting around that money printing machine, and the people furthest away are, of course, the blue-collar workers and the people with fixed pensions and stuff. And so that's how you see this like wealth disparity happen over the period of 40 years. And that's part of why we're seeing, you know, Everything's connected. That's part of why we're seeing these riots, uh, because people are mad. They feel like something's wrong, that they're being stolen from. And they often have a hard time pinpointing, like, you know, why exactly that is. But it's no surprise, right? If, if the wealth disparity is at the extreme, that's when you get iconoclasm. That's when you get riots. That's when uh, you see revolutions happen. All right, guys. So there you have it. The best of the breakdown for June. I hope that you enjoyed the conversations this month. I hope you enjoyed the episodes that are just my analysis. We've got a lot of really fun things coming for July. And uh, before we get there, I hope that you're planning some great 4th of July trip. Happy Freedom Day. I mean, I'll be back with episodes tomorrow and every day between now and then. But it's a great time at the end of every month, I think, to reflect and see what we've learned about ourselves, about our country, about our economy, about our society, and to ask what we could do better next month. So that's it for this one. And we'll see you tomorrow. Until then, be safe and take care of each other. Peace.